Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Giles Gunasekra. Giles is the founder and CEO of the Global Impact Initiative. The initiative works with a variety of organizations to create impact investments, seeking both a positive financial return and a positive social or environmental impact. The business creates bespoke investment solutions that map the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The Global Impact Initiative is currently in the process of developing 10 different impact investing mandates, totaling over 2 billion AUD. Giles has over 20 years experience building and developing teams, businesses and distribution strategies for global enterprises. In 2017, Giles received an outstanding alumnus award from Oxford University for creating an innovative, sustainable business that generates positive social impact. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Giles. Absolute pleasure, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So let's start. um, Could you explain in your own words what the Global Impact Initiative does? And for our listeners that aren't familiar with the concept of impact investment, can you give us an explanation of that as well? Yeah, sure. So let me start off with the uh, definition first. So impact investing is about uh, generating a a positive financial return and positive social impact. So the work that Global Impact Initiative does is we work with family offices, foundations and superannuation funds, pension funds, to create bespoke impact investing mandates. So investment mandates that have a positive financial return and positive social impact. Uh, but those mandates also map to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So everything that we do um, has to be able to map back to one or several of the SDGs. Fantastic. That's really interesting. So can you explain what the difference between impact investment and traditional mainstream investment is? Sure. So in with traditional investments, uh, there is first and foremost and, and, and only a focus on, um, on financial returns. Whereas with impact investing, it's twofold. Um, there is a focus on both generating a financial return, uh, but also generating uh, a, a positive social impact. So that's the major difference is that with an impact investment, there is that additional focus on how do we generate, how do we measure, how do we m- monitor and ultimately map Uh, social impact within the overall investment. Right. Okay. So I know a little bit about what led you to start the Global Impact Initiative, but can you take us back to your time at Oxford and sort of talk us through the inception of GII? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, So impact investment for me has been a a, a long-term journey. Um, I have spent, uh, when I started the business, I had spent 20 plus years in funds management. Uh, so we started the business in at the end of 2015. 
but simultaneously, I had spent 30-plus uh, years in the not-for-profit sector, either as a volunteer or a director on a number of different boards. Uh, you know, my first volunteering um, happened when I was age six, delivering meals on wheels with, with my mum. Uh, and in June of last year, I stepped off the Am Amnesty International board uh, after being on that organisation's board for, for seven years, but still uh, retaining uh, membership of Amnesty International. And so for a long time, Rachel, I'd been looking for a way to combine my two worlds. So I really love the investment world. I, I love the ability uh, that, the invest that investments give you, which is the, to, to be able to create wealth. And, and, and particularly sustainable wealth for, you know, for, for, for clients that are investing. Um, but also I was getting increasingly frustrated with, uh, you know, what I was seeing in the corporate sector, which was a, you know, a, a large amount of capital chasing very few good ideas. Uh, and when I contrasted that to the time that I was spending on various boards, and these were boards like Amnesty International, uh, you know, theatre companies, dance companies, cricket, baseball, a whole range of different organisations, you know, what they all shared in common was they all had fantastic ideas but little capital um, that, that, you know, to, to support those ideas. And so when I started studying impact investing back in 2010, it was really and, – and for me, the journey started with reading um, Social Business and Banker to the Poor, which were two books that um, Muhammad Yunus, Professor Muhammad Yunus, um, now, uh, who, who won a Nobel Prize in, in 2006 for the concept of, of microfinance, but more importantly, uh, for the millions of people that he had pulled out of poverty uh, because of this concept around microfinance and also the number of women that had been empowered uh, because of microfinance. And this whole concept of social business really resonated me, which was, you know, businesses that were set up to be sustainable in terms of generating profits but also delivering social good. And in particular, in the case of microfinance, that was almost exclusively for, for women. Um, but the byproduct of that was that the women would spend, you know, the profits that they would um, have in their business on, on their business, but also on their family. Um, so it had this uh, ability to elongate capital um, and, more importantly, utilise capital, you know, for, for, for social good. And so, you know, my experience at Oxford, um, you know, was all part of the journey. So in, in, I was extremely fortunate in June of 2013 uh, to be accepted into the Oxford Advanced, Advanced Management and Leadership Program. Uh, and this program was 35 people, 26 nationalities, 19 different industries and an age group of 35 to 65. So what I learned from that experience was really the value that I learned so many things, but you know, one of the greatest learning was the value that diversity brings to the decision-making process. So we talk a lot about, you know, diversity and the benefits offered, but I got to live and breathe, you know, having people from the government, you know, government sector, not-for-profit sector, business sector, social enterprises, all in a room, all working on issues, all working on problems, but ultimately in a really respectful environment where we all, you know, acknowledged and understood uh, everyone's different perspectives. And so when I came back from Oxford, I then, you know, had a continued desire, as I typically do, of continuing to, 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 uh, to, to, to learn and to uh, pursue something 
uh, something new. And I then did a course with the School of Social Entrepreneurs. And that course was specifically around how do I build an impact investing business plan? So the only way that we got to graduate that course is that we had to have a a business plan that was ready to be implemented, um, and that had been through a number of iterations before we, you know, before we graduated. Um, so throughout that course, we did the basics around governance, around marketing, around product positioning, um, and 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 so I walked away after nine months with with a business plan that I was ready to to implement. Uh, initially, I was going to implement uh, the business plan through through a through a large corporate. Um, I instead decided that it was a good opportunity for me to um, uh, put put uh, I, I guess put forward some of my uh, entrepreneurial uh, spirits and experience that I'd had more on the not for profit side, uh, but then to you know to put it into a uh, in, in, into a business, and uh, and hence we started uh, Global Impact Initiative at the end of 2015. What a great story! What a great journey that. That you've had. You've touched on a few points there that I want to come back to. A point you made earlier is that your work is very aligned with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So I want to talk a little bit about those and and can I ask you why you selected the SDGs as the framework that your work would be based on? Well, firstly, the the SDGs are often re- Often regarded or, or called the uh, the world's hardest to do list. So I thought, what better place to start than a than a than a to do list? Uh, but most importantly, you know, the SDGs are a irrefutable list of things that need to happen. You know, no poverty. Um, you know, gender equality. Um, you know, in, in smarter cities. You know, renewable energy. So. When you look at each one of those 17, and, and partnerships also being a, a big one, you know, when you look at that list of 17, there's none that you can argue with. They all need to happen, um, really, uh, and, and they need to happen, uh, they need to be started on, you know, ASAP, which, you know, so many organisations are, are, are doing across the spectrum. Um, so uh, we liked, firstly, the fact that it was very tangible. And the beauty of the SDGs as compared to the Millennium Development Goals is that Although there's 17, there's 17 SDGs which are, you know, quite specific to different impact areas. Um, they also have a, a number of, uh, well, they all have quantitative and qualitative targets uh, that are attached to them, and that's what I really liked. Uh, that's what I continue to like about the SDGs is that we can put it into the language that investors are used to. So when you're investing, typically, you know, your investment is pegged to a benchmark um, or a particular rate of return. Um, so in developing these impact investing strategies, we can still uh, peg them to a benchmark, still target a, a you know specific rate of return, but also by utilising the SDGs, we can also utilise them as a really quantifiable objective framework in, in, in order to assess the social impact. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, the impact that we were having, particularly the social impact that it was, was that it's quantifiable, measurable, uh, and observable, and that's what the SDGs uh, enable us to do when we're putting together these strategies. On that point, Australia is participating in the high-level political forum on mm-hmm. 
sustainable development in New York this week. And um, as part of that, I know we were one of the 47 countries that undertook the voluntary national review of, of how much progress we've made towards achieving the SDGs. And I think since 2015, when they came about, they've been well received in some ways and, and not well received in others. I, I question mm-hmm. how well the SDGs have been institutionalised in Australia. So we'll get back to impact investment. But on that mm-hmm. point, what's your take on on how we've we've um, embraced the SDGs in Australia? It's a really good question. Um, I see it being embraced more and more um, in Australia. I'm certainly on a global level, um, you know, all the major global organisations, regardless of, you know, where they're, you know, regardless of which sector they're in, um, are really embracing this, you know, for all the reasons that, you know, I articulated earlier around the fact that you can now quantify, um, quant- you know, quantify the social impact that, uh, that you're having. So the greatest growth um, in an acceptance and usage of the SDGs is actually coming out of the corporate sector. Uh, you know, I was I had the pleasure of attending um, General Assembly Week uh, last year um, and attended a variety of really interesting um, sessions that were organised by, you know, philanthropic organisations, corporates, um, the UN Global Compact, which is, uh, you know, the, 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 the corporate side of um, the corporate engagement uh, piece of the UN. And it was just, it, 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 it's, it's literally, but, you know, being spoken about and and more importantly being um, actioned uh, by big corporates now. So, you know, traditionally Australia have been uh, pretty slow adopters but fast followers, uh, and I expect that to be the case also with, you know, with the SDGs, but also, you know, organisations, you know, need to have, you know, need, need to have a process, need to have frameworks around this, um, and that's what, you know, obviously, you know, a number of these Australian companies um, as well as global companies are, are, are starting to do more and more and, and, and importantly, learning off each other. You know, a number of the sessions I went to at uh, you know, during General Assembly Week were, you know, corporates just sharing their experiences, you know, European corporates sharing their experiences with the US who are, you know, lagging in this area. Um, you know, Australian companies or some of the better ones sharing with European or Asian uh, you know, companies. So it is, it is, it is happening, um, and it will only continue to happen, particularly as uh, more and more case studies of, of, of how it should be done uh, and how it can be done effectively. You know, uh, keep keep coming up. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. And you mentioned the role of the the corporate and and private sector there. Um, I know that you also support the UN Global Compact, which is referred Mm -hmm. to as the world's largest corporate sustainability initiative, I think it is. So Mm -hmm. can you you tell us a bit about the Global Compact and why you think it's an initiative that businesses should get behind? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, the, the solution to solving social problems doesn't reside with the not-for-profit or the philanthropic sector. You know, when you look at, um, you know, a simple pie chart of where just just in, you know, one of the biggest financial markets in the world, you know, the US, you know, 85% of the revenue that's generated um, in the US comes from the corporate sector. You know, 10% comes out of the uh, the not-for-profit sector and 5% from, you know, high net worth individuals and, and family offices. So, you know, for, you know, for as long as we can all remember, 
you know, the not-for-profit sector has been called upon to solve social problems, but they're only doing it with, you know, 10% of the resources. Um, and that's why, you know, the answer has to lie with the corporate sector. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we got involved with the Global Compact, but also, you know, utilising the SDGs as our benchmark for measuring social impact. So, and, and also that then leads very nicely to the work that we're doing, which is around utilising investment capital for social good. So, you know, Australia, as we know, has a very, very large, you know, retirement savings market. You know, we are, we are the fourth largest retirement savings market in the world. We have $2.6 trillion sitting in super. And, you know, the solution to solving these social problems actually is in in utilising some of this, you know, a lot of it being lazy capital. And when I say lazy, you know, it's capital that is not being invested in you know, with with the aligned to the values of the investors. Um, and that's, you know, the investors that own the money, you know, the, the underlying investors, but also the people managing the money as well. So, you know, if we could utilise some of this you know, lazy capital, this this money sitting in the retirement system uh, now for social problems, um, that's got to really going to help, um, you know, solve solve a lot of these issues. Yeah, absolutely it will. You've started talking about some of the projects you're working on there. So let's get into those a bit more. You've launched an impact investing strategy focused on women and girls, mm-hmm. uh, which is the first of its kind globally which is just incredible. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So this has been uh, taken a long time to develop, but is definitely uh, one of the most important, you know, strategies to me both personally and and professionally. You know, for a long time through work uh, that I've done with, you know, Stop Violence Against Women campaigns through Amnesty Amnesty International as well as, you know, White Ribbon, um, I've seen... uh, uh, both the positives and negatives of um, you know gender inequality. You know, at a you know from the negative side, you know uh, have met and uh, you know uh, have met a number of domestic violence uh, you know victims. Um, have spoken at a number of events, uh, you know, advocating uh, you know better behaviour, uh, particularly amongst the male population, uh, as a white ribbon ambassador. But really, from a purely from a human rights perspective. Uh, you know, we have 50% of the population that are not offered the same opportunities as the other 50%. So that has really, um, you know, has, has has really made me look very, very closely at this sector. Uh, sorry, at, at, you know, gender gender equality as, as an area that, you know, we need to do more and more work on. Um, Simultaneously, however, you know, I've seen the positives of, uh, you know, gender equality as well. You know, as a first-generation migrant, you know, I've had members of my family, aunties, uncles, cousins, uh, nieces, nephews, that have all had the opportunity to, to work and contribute to society um, by, you know, by, by having an equal right, you know, to work and, and, and also uh, to, to education. Um, and so the women and girls strategy, as you mentioned, Rachel, is a is is a global first. Um, it's the first impact investing strategy that uh, invests in both women and girls. So there's a number of impact investing strategies that are focused, uh, you know, purely on women, which is which are fantastic. Um, this strategy that we've developed um, with a number of uh, you know integral partners 
uh, is we're investing in companies, first and foremost, that are progressive to women in the workforce. So they are, you know, companies that have, you know, women on the board, women in senior management, good diversity policies, family-friendly policies, a whole bunch of quantitative and qualitative characteristics. What we then do, however, is we take the income that's generated in this portfolio and we give it, we've, we're giving it to an organisation called FHI 360. Um, FHI 360 are a very large uh, NGO based in Washington who have been around for 40-plus uh, years, um, have a focus on health and education um, and you know, have 4,000 staff and operating 35 countries. And through FHI's relationships as well as relationships that we've uh, built, we will then uh, grant money, uh, donate money to social impact programs for girls uh, that are specifically around education, health, nutrition and social and economic empowerment. So we're taking the income from a listed equities portfolio, we're giving it to a not-for-profit in FHI 360, um, who will then distribute it to organisations like Grameen, Malala Fund, uh, and also the UN, but specifically for the purpose of maximising social impact for girls. So these are maternal health programs, these are education programs, um, uh, you know, there's the whole range of education, health, nutrition, and social, social and economic empowerment programs uh, for girls. So through this strategy, uh, we will be able to address, you know, the, effectively the life cycle of female from birth through supporting maternal health programs uh, right through to the workforce and beyond and, and giving women and girls, you know, increased opportunities for employment, education, uh, better health, uh, better nutrition. And that project demonstrates so so perfectly what you talked about earlier of the private sector having abundant capital but not enough good ideas to invest in and then not-for-profits like FHI 360 not having enough capital but having plenty yeah. of great areas to invest in. Yeah, absolutely. What I really love, uh, you know, about this strategy, Rachel, is it is, a, it is a true ecosystem approach. So we've got fund managers, we've got... FHI 360, very large not-for-profits. We've got Grameen, Malala, the UN. Um, and then ultimately, it's we, we're utilising retirement savings, um, you know, to, 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 to fund this strategy. So investors are getting to use their retirement savings now. Um, so money that they can't actually access in some instances for 20, 30, 40 years, but they get to utilise that capital now to try to solve, you know, some of the uh, issues that we have, not some of the issues, but the issues that we have around uh, gender inequality. So that's what's most exciting. It's utilising future capital um, for, for, for current, you know, social problems. It is really exciting. You have another project uh, focused on renewable energy with a particular mm -hmm. focus on the social impact of renewable energy. Could you tell us yep. a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this uh, strategy focuses on uh, solar, wind, and battery. Um, and as we know, you know, renewable energy is is increasing um, in, in increasing in popularity. Um, you know, soaring uh, electricity prices. You know, unsustainable. Uh, you know, uh, you know, mining practices as well have have really led to this being a you know a growth sector. 
And so, you know, the consumption of renewable energy will only continue to increase, particularly as, you know, electric vehicles in particular, um, uh, you know, more and more of these organ- uh, you know, electric vehicles come onto the market. So you've got, you got very large car companies like Volvo and Renault, you know, committing to not producing any more petrol vehicles uh, by 2020, 2025, around about that time. So you've got a, a, a movement um, in, well, firstly, you won't be able to buy uh, petrol vehicles very soon. Uh, but secondly, the consumption of you know electricity um, will also increase, and and solar consumption of solar has been doubling year on year for the last ten years, um, and will only continue. Um, so what we've uh, what we're doing in this particular renewable energy strategy is you know the benefits of renewable energy is is it should be quite obvious to 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 the listeners, uh, but particularly in terms of sustainability, um, you know it it is it is something that. Um, you know, getting a solar farm right, getting a wind farm right, um, and improving battery storage, um, and and doing it sustainably will continue to generate returns for investors. Uh, but more importantly, lead to you know um, utilization of electricity um, and energy at a, at a, at a much uh, at a much more sustainable level. But the difference with this particular renewable energy strategy that we've adopted is that we want this to have a very community and regional centric approach when it comes to social impact. So what we'll be doing is, you know, if we buy a, a solar farm in, in regional New South Wales, you know, wherever that farm is based, we will then put back um, into the community, uh, you know, in in terms of education, employment, or health. So, as an example, if we've got a, um, you know, if we've got a solar farm uh, in country New South Wales, that um, that also that that through the profits of the fund that we can can um, uh, increase the number of electrical engineering apprenticeships, we'll do that. So, in those communities where the asset is. We will provide apprenticeships. We can provide teachers' aids in schools, or we can help, you know, a local not-for-profit, you know, from a that, that's involved in the health space or a hospital. Um, so we want to be very deliberate about the social impact uh, and ensuring that, particularly, it has a community and regional focus. But it, but that asset is actually based, um, and we're finding incredible um, acceptance. Well, firstly, um, you know, we've got a number of companies that have come to us um, with capital uh, that, you know, that want to support um, our projects. Um, but we're also finding really interestingly, um, you know, farmers with, you know, with uh, with lots of land, you know, coming to us and saying, well, I'd love a solar farm, you know, put on my property um, because, uh, you know, I want to I want to raise less cattle and I want to do something better for the environment. And they also know that ultimately they can they can generate a return, you know, from those solar panels as well. So the once again, you know, it's this ecosystem approach to ensuring that, you know, we're utilising assets that do generate very very good infrastructure infrastructure type returns, but then utilising the profits for the communities where the assets are actually based. And and in places like Australia, I mean, I was very fortunate to speak at a conference in Berlin um, called Fund Forum International in about six weeks ago. It's the largest uh, asset manager conference uh, in the world and it's got, you know, very large pension funds uh, from all over the world that attend. 
And, you know, the common comment that I got from, you know, these very large institutional investors was, well, Giles, we know that Australia, in Australia, the sun shines and there's lots of land. So if you've got a renewable energy strategy, you know, where you've got solar, wind and battery, you know, we're interested. Um, so there's definitely global demand for this um, and the ability, as I said, to really get quite targeted in our social impact of communities, particularly in the education, uh, sorry, employment, education and health sectors is, is of particular interest to us. It's so encouraging to hear all that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Australia has submitted a voluntary national review ahead of the HLPF uh, PF in New York this week. And uh, obviously goal seven is clean energy, um, goal seven of the sustainable development goals. And I think for Australia, at least some of those renewable energy targets seem like such a stretch for us, for mm. a country that doesn't have, you know, so um, coal and, and gas dependent focusing on renewable energy in the future does seem like a challenge. And then when you talk mm. about these businesses that are really getting behind it because they see the financial and the social value of it, that's really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also what we're seeing, Rachel, is, you know, companies are, are getting behind this because their employees want them to get behind it as well. So, you know, more and more corporates that I talk to, um, you know, they're finding just through their recruitment process that, that, that um, employees are asking much more about what the organisation is doing for the community, for the environment, uh, for not-for-profit enterprises. That seems to be more of the questions as opposed to, you know, what's my compensation, what's my bonus, um, you know, and, and how long are, you know, am I going to be locked in here for? You know, it's much more around the corporate as a good corporate citizen as a good corporate citizen and as i said that's being driven by employees and largely you know millennial millennial employees who, who are you know starting out in their jobs but more and more it's 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 happening across uh, you know where we we also deal with you know CEOs and chief investment officers of you know large pension funds super funds and you know they're asking the same questions as well you know how do we do things more sustainably you know, how do we contribute to the environment um, and, and, you know, how do we improve, uh, you know, our general operations and, and be a better corporate citizen? They're the right questions to be asking. And um, another topic that those questions are increasingly being asked about is our cities and how we can create sustainable cities. Um, you're doing a little bit of work on um, slum rehabilitation with worldwide generation. Can you briefly mm -hmm. give us an overview of that project? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is a really exciting project um, that also similarly has been, uh, been under development for, uh, for quite some time. Um, and, and for all good reason, uh, you know, one of the initial, uh, the initial focus of, um, you know, this impact investing strategy was to Firstly, bulldoze a slum and, and put up a, uh, a new apartment complex um, in its place. But what we found through talking to the slum, you know, the, the, the slum dwellers, is that that wasn't something that they were actually interested. The majority of them were interested in. Um, you know what they wanted. Uh, you know what the what what you know we found, and then this has been um, you know backed up by you know research you know globally. Um, is that slums actually have one of the highest levels of happiness um, in the world. 
And the main reason is is that um, you've got generations of families that have cohabited, uh, you know, lived around each other and with each other. Uh, their commerce, you know, their place of business is typically outside their door. Um, you know, their childcare, you know, their support network is 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 their community. Um, and so for a lot of uh, people living in slums, there's not a great desire um, or want, you know, to move out of uh, their environment. So we had to think uh, a lot uh, smarter um, and, and also talk to more people around, you know, what the solution was. So what the solution that we've come up with anyway is we're going to we'll be working with not-for-profits on the ground who will find us the right people um, so we will still uh, construct an apartment complex. Uh, we will we will rent out half of it commercially, so we'll generate a return uh, th through renting out those apartments uh, to those that can afford it. Uh, for those that can't afford it, uh, not-for-profits will go into slums, find us the right people, um, help them establish bank accounts, help them get the government grants that they're entitled to, and then help them move into uh, these apartments as well. Because in our research, what we also found is that, you know, people uh, that have, you know, lived in, uh, lived in slums all their lives um, and been able to see their neighbours and, and talk to their neighbours, suddenly putting them in a, uh, an apartment with a locked door um, and four walls um, can be quite frightening. And so what has typically happened uh, is that, People naturally get spooked uh, because no one's told them how to, no one's told them or taught them how to live in an apartment. Uh, they get spooked and they go and find another, you know, another, another slum to live in, uh, and they'll rent out their apartment and utilise the money for their kids' education. So it's extremely altruistic, um, you know, the the you know how they're using you know that money from that apartment, but ultimately it doesn't break immediately that cycle of poverty. So this model whereby you, you have trusted NGOs on the ground that are finding the right people, helping them move into the apartments, but then also the impact investing strategy, we get to map uh, and, and capture the data on these, you know, on these families. From an investment perspective, you know, what we find is that, you know, these apartment buildings are, are generating a revenue through rental income, uh, but because they're in densely populated places like Mumbai, there's there's very good capital appreciation on the land as well, so investors can can, can potentially get double digit returns, so somewhere around you know ten to twelve percent returns from investing into this affordable housing strategy. But then what we'll also report back to investors, like we do with all our impact investing strategies, is you've returned you know X percent, let's call it ten percent, uh, but also these are the number of you know, women, girls, men and boys that you've impacted socially. So these are the number of girls that have now, you know, gone into school as a result of the investment. These are the number of families who are now housed in an apartment as opposed to being housed in a, in a, in a slum, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of really important life-changing social impact metrics that we'll be able to capture and more importantly, report back to investors on a regular basis um, and showing them that, you know, yes, they're investing into, um, you know, into an apartment complex effectively, an affordable housing uh, uh, complex, but they are also deriving and, and giving, you know, a community um, opportunities that they would never have been able to access before. 
Um, and the exciting thing is that you know there's there's many many organisations that are coming up with similar you know approaches to this. So you know we're getting quite granular when it comes to measuring um, you know the social impact. But there's lots and lots of you know similar affordable housing slum rehabilitation projects that are happening, which is really exciting because we're all getting to learn um, at the same time, but we're also getting to ultimately improve. Um, you know the lives of, uh, of, of, of so many people um, through through this learning process, which is which is really really exciting. It is. I think you've explained that so well. We we had Paul James on the show a couple of weeks ago. Um, Paul worked for UN the UN Global Compact and specifically the yes. UN Cities Program, and he talked about the challenges of that that bulldozing method with slums and and how it's Mm. not as straightforward as simply relocating people and I think you've explained that really really well and it's clear what a great um what a great influence impact investment can have in that space we haven't got a lot of time left so there's two questions I want to ask you before we finish up you've touched on this by speaking about your projects already but can you just briefly explain the role that impact investment can play in redefining international aid and development? Yeah, absolutely. So the role that impact investing can play is really highlighting, you know, the high social impact uh, that international aid, you know, development programs have. Um, You know, so the, hopefully as I've articulated, you know, our impact investing strategies that we're developing uh, a very much an ecosystem approach to solving problems. So it's about engaging international aid organisations, governments, NGOs, social enterprises uh, with investment capital. Um, and so international aid organisations uh, are really important within this. And also through impact investing, we can help international aid organisations improve their performance and improve their reporting because, you know, what we say to those organisations as well as other NGOs and, and organisations that we're working with is as long as you can demonstrate, you know, both from a, uh, you know, from a quantitative and qualitative perspective the social impact that you're having, um, we will, you know, we will help to fund, you know, your programs. So what it's causing, you know, the whole community, particularly when it comes to impact investing, uh, you know, people that are engaged in impact investing, is that there's a higher consciousness around, you know, what are we actually doing here? You know, what, you know, what are the metrics? How are we measuring it? And, and ultimately, how, how are we ensuring that social impact is being achieved? Now, we've got lots of examples where, um, you know, governments throw money at problems and they do it uh, because they think it's the right thing to do, but they also do it... Um, because there's a budget there, and and um, and you know, and 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 they need to basically get rid of it. Um, that's becoming less and less um, of an issue now because everyone is demanding governments. You know, the whole ecosystem is demanding that you know don't just throw money at problems. You know, put money towards problems, but also assess uh, the impact of those of 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 where that money's gone. And that's a crucial role that, you know, impact investing will play because, you know, we're talking about taking, you know, institutional capital, investment capital and deploying it for both financial return and social impact. 
And so both of those objectives mean that there needs to be a higher standard of reporting um, and measurement. Um, and so it will only improve and increase the transparency of all these organisations to make sure that, you know, they are spending their money in the right areas, you know, and at the right time on the right programs. That is so encouraging to hear. And I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Giles, thank you so much for being so generous with, with all of your experience today. The The work that the Global Impact Initiative is doing is is so inspiring and so important. And I'm, I'm really grateful that, that we could learn more about it today. So thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again for the opportunity, Rachel. 